Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. How should we remember the past, even if our history is painful at times? A former teacher in Guilford, Connecticut, helped start a project to remember enslaved residents in his town. It's called the Witness Stones Project. It was inspired by the stumbling stones that started in Germany, a place to memorialize where Jewish people lived before being killed in the Holocaust. In Connecticut, the Witness Stones Project has grown, and now more than 70 stones have been placed to remember enslaved Africans and Native Americans who lived in our towns. Coming up, we hear how members in one community are researching the past of an enslaved woman named Tamer. First, joining us on Zoom is Dennis Culleton, co-founder and executive director of the Witness Stones Project. Dennis, welcome back to the show. Thank you. We'll see our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Dennis, you were back on the show in 2018, and that was after you started the project in Guilford. And back then you told me your goal was to place 30 stones in town. So how many are in Guilford now? And describe these markers for us. Yes, there are seven stones in Guilford right now, and they're placed um, mostly around the green in Guilford. We have this beautiful eight-acre green. And when we started with a local committee, we thought that this would be a great way for us to understand who lived in our communities. We have these wonderful house plaques that show us who owned the houses, and they're all um, of of white people who own the houses. And we also, most of the time it's men, although there's occasionally one for women. But uh, we thought, you know, there's other people who live here and how can we remember them and remember their stories? So my friend Doug Nigren came back from Germany with the idea of the Stolpelstein using my research. And then, of course, um, you know, we brought it to the classroom. Um, We are planning on putting three stones in North Guilford on the 1st of June. And um, that's going to be the first time we're putting stones outside of the downtown community. Now, I understand that there are 72 stones around Connecticut. So tell me about how this project has grown. Who are involved in researching and thinking about the people that lived in their communities? Well, I'm going to give you some credit because after the uh, radio show in 2018, I was contacted immediately by uh, by retired teachers in, in West Hartford, um, <clears throat> Tracy Wilson and Liz Devine and uh, Denise Malillo. And they contacted me and they said, could we bring the Witness Stones project here? So I was able to get a grant from Connecticut Humanities to uh, give a workshop for those teachers. And they started to do the work in in, um, West Hartford. And they have dozens of stones that they've placed at the old burial ground there. And also as a spinoff of your radio program, um, Jennifer Frank, a writer who wrote the, uh, was a co-writer of the book Complicity, wrote an article uh, about the Witness Stones Project for the Southern Poverty Law Center magazine, Teaching Tolerance, and it went to about 
40,000 teachers across the country. So, so that was really a big part of our jumpstart. But what we've been doing since is giving teacher workshops across the state um, to help them understand um, what, what Connecticut's economy looked like uh, you know, during the colonial and early American periods, what slavery looked like in Connecticut, then using local research, oftentimes done by people in Greenwich or Old Lyme or West Hartford, applying that research to tell the story of enslaved individuals. I also do a lot of the research myself, and I'll go into communities and look in the wills and archives and and property records and other places to pull out records about these individuals. Well, I loved hearing that anecdote that the project uh, really blossomed when you talked about it on Where We Live. Thank you, Dennis, for sharing that. Sure. And, uh, and I love hearing that not only do you have uh, former or current history teachers and historians, but there are community members that have gotten involved and so many students. Can you talk about the work with them? Yes. I, you know, <clears throat> I think the biggest surprise to me was during this COVID year that uh, many teachers, of course, after the the sad deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and many others realized that they had to do something in their classroom. So they wanted to bring something that was meaningful that talked about issues of social justice and race and, and inequality. And so they approached me. So oftentimes I'm approached by teachers and sometimes by, like I said, community members and sometimes by historical societies. But uh, the most important part is that we bring it to the community and, and we probably reached over 4,000 students at this time in these few short years. And, and we do it through individual projects in these, in, in these towns. Um, but I, I'm very excited with the partnerships and we are uh, opening a Witness Stone Center at Central Connecticut State University this summer. And um, we're now expanded to also New Jersey and Massachusetts with discussions in Rhode Island and, and other places. So it's, it's, a, it's a crazy time uh, for us. Again, you're hearing Dennis Culleton here on Where We Live, co-founder and executive director of the Witness Stones Project, as we learn about why communities are thinking about uh, the residents who were formerly enslaved uh, in their towns. Uh, when we think about history, the people that we learn about, but those stories that have been hidden from us and the reasons why. Again, you can join us if you have a question about the Witness Stones Project, if you're interested in bringing this to your community, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Dennis, you mentioned complicity and that was such a groundbreaking book uh, about uh, Connecticut's uh, history with slavery. So there are people in communities that are engaged with that history, but what are the reactions from uh, whether it's residents or students who didn't understand Connecticut's role with slavery? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting because I think with students, the reaction is, wow, this is, this is good, you know, this is good stuff. This is neat stuff. We can begin to, you know, examine why we have the Black Lives Matter movement today. We can look 300 years ago in Connecticut and see how African and African-Americans were treated. Um, <clears throat> but I, 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 I think, um, you know, there's such a, um, with, with adults, sometimes there's a teeny bit of cognizant dissonance because I'm, we're trying to teach them things that they learn differently. So imagine going to somebody and saying, well, your eighth grade history teacher told you a story that isn't complete or told you a story that's partially wrong about American history. And we're going to share with you the documents, the details, the facts that show us that there was a different history, that Connecticut made a 
large percent of its money from trading with slave owners in the South and in the West Indies. And that's what, that's what, that's why we have these big houses around our greens and stuff. It isn't because we were selling hay to each other. And that isn't something that everybody wants to hear. I grew up in Massachusetts and I, you know, I learned that slavery was a Southern issue. Racism was a Southern issue. Inequality was a Southern issue and segregation was a Southern issue. And it was shocking to me to realize that, Slavery was here. Racism was in our laws. Segregation is something that we've, you know, we have walls to keep people out of our uh, communities and, and inequality is here every day. So how, what, but then what happens if you know this information, then we can't say the South has to fix things. We kind of have to say we have to fix things. So we don't have, you know, the Witness Stones Project doesn't have to go too deeply in that when we're in the classroom, but we have to show the students what happened here, and we do it through telling individual stories. To give people an idea, between the early 1700s and early 1800s, when we think about slavery as a part of Connecticut's history, there were more than 5,000 enslaved people that lived in our state. That's according to West Hartford town historian Tracy Wilson. So when people hear those numbers, I imagine they're surprised, Dennis. Yes, and I think they're more surprised. Uh, you know, I'm looking at a map on my wall of, uh, taken from this old magazine that shows the map of Connecticut according to the 1790 census. And, and there is not a community in Connecticut in 1790 that did not have enslaved people. I think that's that's a shock too, because we can always say, oh, there were enslaved people. They were probably in New London, or they were probably in Bridgeport, or they were probably in New Haven. Well, they were probably in your town too. And that's the part that's shocking to people. Uh, because once we localize it or hyper localize this, then we begin to think differently and hopefully internalize a, a different view of the past. You know, we like to say we're weaving colors back into the fabric of our history where you know we're, we're telling these stories and really trying to tell a story of, of slavery, but also of agency and resistance and about how these enslaved people even though they were dehumanized, show their humanity. And we spend a lot of time flushing that out because the documents don't necessarily tell us that. If, if you enslave somebody, you want to dem diminish them in your documentation so that your reasoning for enslaving them is logical. But if you realize that they're humans, you can read across the grade and find evidence of, of their humanity. If you want to get a look at what a witness stone looks like in these communities, if you go to WMPR.org slash where we live, there are pictures that Dennis Culleton has shared with us of markers that have been put up in different communities. And again, you can join us 888-720-9677 as we talk more about the Witness Stones Project. Cheryl in New Haven. Go ahead, Cheryl. Oh, hi. Thank you for so much. I just wanted to share, I was lucky enough to see Dennis present to the Connecticut Society of Genealogists, and as a result, reached out, and he gave me the opportunity to volunteer. As a genealogist, we do a lot of volunteer work and a lot of research, and I am so happy that I have this opportunity. It's not easy research. It can be really hard and challenging when you uncover certain facts and information and even where you find it. But um, it's so important, and I just wanted to share that I, I love the opportunity, Dennis, that you've given me. And I'm still working on it. In fact, I'm working on it today, 
and very happy that all the archives are beginning to open up so that I have uh, access to more records. But um, being in New Haven, he's having me do research in New Haven, and I hope that the research that I do can help schools, and I encourage New Haven schools to reach out to Dennis and the Witness Stones Project um, to start partnering with him. Thank you, Cheryl. Dennis, did you want to respond? Yes, Cheryl. Th- thank you so much. And, and I appreciate the work we're doing. We are doing an installation ceremony on June 2nd uh, um, at the uh, Party Morris House with uh, students from Cold Spring School and Foot School. So, you know, we're so excited to be, you know, to have a, um, you know, a toehold, <laughs> I would say, in New Haven. But there's, as Cheryl could tell you, there's so many stories to tell. And, and they're so interesting because <laughs> these are stories that haven't been told. And, and, and you, you, stumble across these lives of people that are, are amazing that we, you know, it, are lost to history, except with the help of people like Cheryl and other historians and our students who take these documents and, and, and tell us, put these stories together and share them with the community. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest, Dennis Culleton, will stay with us as we learn more about how other Connecticut towns are exploring their connections to slavery. There are efforts to place a witness stone in my town of Suffield. Coming up, a local historian will talk about the work being done to remember an enslaved woman named Tamer. And we want to hear from one of her family's descendants as well. Now, do you have a witness stone where you live? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, I've lived in Suffield for nearly six years, and it's a town that is proud of its history. Suffield's Main Street is a historic district listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And many of the historic homes bear markers with the names of prominent residents who lived or built those homes. But there are now efforts to place a marker, a witness stone, to remember a woman named Tamer, who was enslaved and lived in Suffield in the late 1700s. Joining us now is the person who's been leading the research efforts with a group of Suffield residents. Bill Sullivan joins us on Zoom. He's a Suffield Historical Society trustee, also an English and history teacher at Suffield Academy. Bill, welcome to the show. 
Thank you for having me, Lucy. So I love these history stories, and we do a lot of history shows. But as a historian, tell us how this all got started in Suffield. Um, It began about uh, 10 years ago. I have a senior seminar class where I cast a driving question uh, to them, and they put on a presentation to the Historical Society, and uh, it's great. And and usually there's always an African-American topic. And um, three years ago, it was the, the driving question was about women's history to get the town to do some history, original history for our town's 350th birthday party. And um, some students were holding this um, bill of sale um, and looking at it carefully. And they realized that, well, wait a minute, um, Luther Loomis sold Tamer to Solomon Smith of Haddam. And they just read the complicity chapter on Venture Smith. And they're like, is this, is this Solomon Smith vis-a-vis Venture Smith's son? And um, we contacted Dr. Carl Stovkoff, who's the family historian genealogist for the, the Venture Smith descendants. And um, we wrote him a letter, old-fashioned snail mail letter, and he wrote a wonderful letter back. And indeed it was. And that's where, that's where the town's um, collective um, history began on that. And then as Dennis was saying, during COVID last spring, he and I were working on other projects here. And um, I realized, wait a minute, I should, we should plan an asynchronous online learning class for the Historical Society. And um, we launched it on the Historical Society Facebook page and it started with 20 students and it took up to, it took off to over 40 now. Um, we were planning three classes, but then the, uh, these are great students. They found all these wonderful, uh, documents that open up two more chapters to Tamer's life where the Venture Smith historians thought Tamer, um, passed away in 1810, but we found, um, two more decades of her life. So it's been exciting. Now, you've mentioned Venture Smith a couple of times, and I think some of our listeners know about him, but he was a freed black man who wrote his own autobiography, one of the, I think, first known accounts uh, by a formerly enslaved person writing about his life. And uh, tell us about Tamer and how she fits into his family story. Yes, um, it, it is good to pause on Venture Smith. I mean, it's um, a, an amazing document, um, an amazing narrative uh shows all the dehumanization that um enslaved people had to endure um and there's some rough times in his life but uh interesting too in the document you learn that he was um a prince in africa when he was kidnapped and um with that um i think the students as dennis was saying you know they're they're open to new stories and um with that uh there were when we found the discovery that Tamer was connected to um, Venture Smith's family, we went back and and looked at the documents carefully. And um, what we found is that um, we don't know where Tamer was born. And that's a, a, you know, an unfortunate, sad story when you do African-American research. But uh, when she was seven years old, she was sold from Comfort Smith here in Suffield to Luther Loomis. Um, and, um, that's where, uh, we then began making more connections to try to figure out the history of Luther Loomis and what her life was like. And, um, yeah. And then the class took off from there. And through your research and your class research, uh, you learned that Tamer lived in Suffield for about 18 years. Yes. 
I'd love to know more about the documents. And this is something that Dennis Culleton brought up earlier, because, uh, you know, as historians, in a way, you're also detectives, right? And you're finding different pieces of information. And the point that Dennis brought up earlier, in the sense of someone who enslaved others, it wasn't, they didn't make a point to distinguish these, this person's humanity, or even to list them as if they were a person. And so talk through those documents that your class went through. Correct. That's a um, um, good point. Um, <clears throat> and that's where I should say, taking a step back, that Dennis was great. Um, and we had a uh, conference this summer with other Connecticut teachers, um, and we called it the Hard History Conference. And with that, we had uh, Dr. Hassan uh, Jeffries, who's out of Ohio State, who is uh, helps teachers with the hard history of um, doing this type of history, so that you can, one, feel comfortable talking about um, race back then as well as today. And um, the other good thing too on Dennis's website, you can see these five themes of um, research uh, that you keep in mind when you do this research are very helpful. So the, yes, looking at the dehumanization aspect of um, these documents, it's, uh, it is um, quite telling and that's where you have to look sideways. Once you find the document, you just have to start cross-referencing and, and, and find out what other enslaved women did in a colonial household. And then when you see the size of Luther Loomis's household, you realize what she was um, most likely doing around the fire, around childcare um, and other duties. And yeah. One of the members of your research class, also a part of the Suffield Historical Society, is Jackie Hemond, who used to be the librarian in town. Jackie, welcome to the show. Can you hear me? Hello? Jackie, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now. Thank you for joining the show today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I, I'm so happy to, to join you. So we were just talking about the documents that uh, the class uh, discovered uh, and how you research uh, a person like Tamer. And I'm wondering if you can walk us through how, when you were the librarian, how you were helping uh, his students uh, find more information on Tamer and how the Historical Society group has taken it further. Well, what happened... Um, this came to my attention when Bill came maybe four years ago, Bill, um, to find out, uh, to find the bill of sale for Tamer. And uh, at the time, the library was under renovation and our archives were off-site. So um, he had to search um, for the bill of sale and found it, and that started the journey. So that was very exciting. Um, I only pointed, Bill did the research. Um, and the same thing was with the class. Um, I was a, an eager participant, but did not do the research that the other class, um, my other classmates did. But it was very exciting to, uh, to participate in that and um, to find out um, more information about Tamer. And it, it's, it's exciting because when I went to school, this type of history was not talked about. So it's, it's a great thing. Uh, Bill, we're getting a question on Twitter. I think Allie wants to know, how do you find these bills of sale? Well, I should say, you know, we have, um, we're very fortunate here in Suffield that we have a, an amazing 19th century historian, Hezekiah Spencer Sheldon, 
whose um, documented histories of Suffield um, point out slavery and point out um, specific moments uh, when and where it happened with the colonial ministers. Um, and it's interesting. So once, <clears throat> once you do a local deep dive, then you can start seeing how other communities do a deep dive. And uh, that's the fun part about, you know, working with Dennis, it's almost like I feel I'm at a graduate seminar with him <clears throat> and I can take what I learned and then cross-reference what he and other historians and local communities have found. And it's really, um, that's how we can put together um, sort of a, in a quilt fashion, a better history of 18th century enslaved lives uh, in 19th, early 19th century here in Connecticut. But um, you find it all sorts of different ways. Some people will um, write about it or actually uh, another aspect is oftentimes enslavers didn't really describe the people they enslaved until they ran away. And um, that's a significant moment where you can learn more about um, the institution of colonial Northern slavery. Um, but so yeah, your local archivist will help your, I mean, <clears throat> it's, I didn't necessarily discover this bill of sale. It's been curated in our, in our library um, before um, Ann Borg of the historical society um, knows that room inside and out and can show you three different ways to find something. And uh, <clears throat> like I said, also the, the 1920s historic um, commemoration committee here in Southfield documented slavery as well. So it, what's so fascinating and fun, and it's just a great challenge, whether adult students or high school students, is that this research takes sideways thinking, cross-referencing, and particularly um, that's a skill that uh, young learners don't know because Google now has taken away cross-referencing. And uh, so I love teaching that. And when they get into the, you know, this, where, as Dennis was saying too, these are important stories. When they get into the story, then they'll they're ready and open to learning any new type of research skill. Dennis Culleton, you're still with us, again, co-founder of the Witness Stones Project. Uh, you were a former teacher. Uh, uh, Bill laid out that uh, Suffield has many great resources and people so engaged with uh, the town history. But if you live in a town that doesn't have that kind of resource or people uh, that have done all of this archival work, where do you begin? Um. I think you use the term detective work and, and you find a thread. And so um, it might be in an anecdote. It might be uh, in the church archives. There's at the state library, um, most of the congregational churches and some of the Episcopal churches in the state have their, um, their books indexed. So you go to the back of the book where it says people without surnames and you start looking at names and you might find someone like Pompey and it might say uh, Pompey, uh, servant of uh, Elijah Dodd, baptized, you know, 1750. Then you say, who's this Elijah Dodd? And then you try to find documents about him and his will. In his will, he might mention Pompey again and who Pompey is given to. Um, Pomp, you might find someone later on in the census uh, on the same street that Eli Dodd lived or Elijah Dodd, um, a man named Pompey uh, Negro. And then you <laughs> then you keep going from there. So you take census data, probate records, uh, probate inventories, wills. Um, enslaved people were oftentimes freed 
as in the property records, very close to where you would find deeds and homes, home sales. Um, and you just keep pulling the, it's like you pull the strings together, kind of what Bill was saying, and you take these patches and you make a quilt with them. And um, some, some individuals, you might find a dozen documents that help tell a very thorough and rich story and other individuals, you might just find a birth or death record or a baptismal record. Um, but every town in Connecticut that was around during the colonial period has these records either in the probate court or the property vault or the state library. And our friends at Ancestry.com um, have digitized a lot of the stuff. So it makes it, uh, so during COVID you could, as I did this winter, you could sit at your computer and find wills for many of the people that, uh, who were the enslavers, which helps us. And, and occasionally we find wills for, for free blacks that help us understand what their life was like in their wills and their probate inventories, what property they owned, what type of work they did and, and, whether they played the violin. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's um, I would just say there's not a straight shot to how to do this, but you just take that thread or that patch and you, you start sewing another patch to it. And before you know it, you can tell a story. Those are good tips for us. Uh, Jackie Heeman, I did want to ask you, I heard the excitement when you were talking uh, about uh, being involved in this project. Anything that you learned that surprised you about Tamer? Well, what I thought was very interesting, I wanted to point out the documents that we found with Tamer. And um, first thing we found is that she was married to Solomon in a white church in Hartford. So that was one document that was found. Um, Another document um, talking about Luther Loomis, who was her master in, in Suffield, was involved in the West Indian slave trade. And so there was newspaper reports about his ship, um, traveling um, back and forth to that area. Um, Another document that was found uh, was that Solomon had posted that she had run away from him um, in 1810, I believe. And then um, the last document that was found um, was was a a record that she had died and that there was a a nurse had... um, sent a bill of um, invoice for her funeral expenses or her nursing expenses, I guess it was. So that was also exciting, and it came in piecemeal um, throughout the class. Very exciting. Well, thank you, Jackie, for calling in to talk about why you're involved uh, still in uh, this research project in the town of Suffield. Thanks, Jackie, for your time today. Okay. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the Witness Stones Project through the work of co-founder Dennis Culleton. Some Connecticut towns are confronting their connections with slavery and have put up markers, witness stones, uh, to remember enslaved residents. Now, there's an effort happening in Suffield where I live. We just also heard from Bill Sullivan, a trustee of the Suffield Historical Society, who has led a study group of interested community members like Jackie to research the life of an enslaved woman who lived in Suffield in the late 1700s. Her name was Tamer. Now, she married Solomon Smith, as we heard, after he purchased her in 1798. He was the son of Venture Smith. And joining us now on Zoom is a ninth descendant of Venture Smith, Susie Ryan. She's a fiber artist and speaker. She documents and cloths her enslaved ancestors and other people in the African diaspora. Susie, welcome to our show. 
Well, good morning. Thank you, Lucy, for having me on today. I love hearing about your family history. And could you tell us more about uh, what you learned in your relation to Venture Smith? Um, so my family has been blessed. And I say it blessed in the sense that other people have been documenting Venture's story since his first narrative came out. And so as an African-American, um, and descendant of slaves on both sides of my paternal family. Um, I feel blessed that, you know, in our family that we have this documentation where so many people, descendant of slaves in the United States, have nothing to go on. So every time that someone does research and finds something, whether it's on Ventures side of the family or, you know, other African-Americans within the diaspora, um, it's just, to me, it's like a form of reparation because for so long, many people, the slave masters and the descendants of the slave masters didn't want to uh, volunteer that information up easily. Mm. So, again, as a descendant, I'm, I'm blessed, but I'm also grateful for the people that have been doing the research all along, um, trying to you know put the stories together. I understand these story quilts that you make. Uh, tell us about how you tell the story of your family and others. So um, I'll give you an example of one particular quilt that I made. Um, growing up in Connecticut, my family, my, my grandfather's side of the family, which is the Venture Smith side, um, were they, they loved to fish. And my grandfather was an avid fisher, as was my father and my uncle. And so we would um, have family picnics and go fishing um, and swimming and picnicking in Stonington, Connecticut. And it wasn't until 2009 that um, Marta Daniels and her um, partner, uh, Nancy Byrne, discovered that tw- um, the 26 acres that Venture, the first documented piece of land that Venture had purchased, um, was exactly where we were going fishing and taking the boat over to Fisher's Island. So, wow. um, so one of my pieces is a tribute to that actual um, 26 acres. It's a map quilt, and it I've actually made two of them. One of them I actually gave to Marta Daniels. Um, it's a representation of the 26 acres and how they were hidden in plain sight for over 200 years. And the, the property is directly close to um, Thomas Stanton, who was Venture Smith's former master. Um, and because of a rock, a, a glacial erratic, that was the marking that people were saying that the land was a pie-shaped piece of property. In reality, it was more like a wonky diamond piece of property. And so um, I made the first piece in calico cloth because Venture was sold for four barrels of rum and a piece of calico. And then I made a second one after my family had gone to Ghana to retrace Venture's footsteps through um, for Anamabu. And so I had a lot of African cloth, and I made a second one in African cloth mm. and um, as a tribute to Venture himself. We've been learning today about the Witness Stones Project, uh, these efforts by local residents to memorialize enslaved residents like Tamer. When did you learn about the Witness Stones Project, and what do you think about Tamer's story? Oh, I I found out about the Witness Stone Project earlier this year. 
um, from Laurie, who was with uh, Bill. I, th- I believe she's a student in one of his classes. And she had sent an email to my sister and I asking if we would be interested in learning more about this news that was discovered. And I've known about Tamer as far as that she was Venture's, um, I mean, Solomon's wife. But um, I think it's, it, again, I think it's amazing that people are actually honoring part of American history, which I always say African-American history is American history. Um, so to be part of this, it, again, it's another honor. And I'm going to put my uh, hands right into the sink and help do more research for other people. Because again, my family is blessed, but there's so many out there that don't have this. So if people can find um, researchers and scholars in descendants and, and myself, a descendant, you know, trying to help other descendants, piecemeal their family together, then I feel that's a wonderful project. Well, it's been really nice to hear from you, Susie Ryan, again, a fiber artist and a speaker, a ninth descendant of Venture Smith. Venture Smith was a freed black man who wrote his own autobiography, one of the earliest known books by a formerly enslaved person. Susie, I'd love to welcome you back to the show. We can learn more about the work that you do and your family's story. Thank you, Susie, for your time. Well, thank you. Again, this is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to learn more about how the Witness Stones Project is happening in communities across our state. You can also ask a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about the Witness Stones Project with Dennis Culleton, co-founder and executive director of the Witness Stones Project. And Bill Sullivan is here, a Suffield Historical Society trustee. There are efforts to place a witness stone in the town of Suffield uh, through the work of Bill and a community study group. So, Bill, we've learned about your research. We've learned a little bit about Tamer. Where are you in the process to actually place a stone in town to remember her? Um, I have um, gone in front of the Board of Selectmen uh, twice, and they've been um, great meetings. And actually, before that, I presented to the uh, veterans group. It, it happens that um, the location of Luther Loomis's mansion is right on the corner of our two busy streets, Bridge Street and North Main Street. And that over the last 20 years has evolved into a wonderful uh, veterans park. And um, so um, the class first proposed a installation um, of her memorial, Witness Stone Memorial, just inside the sidewalk, inside their park, but they were concerned about that, um, the veterans group and the board of selectmen. So we're working on alternative locations and um, yeah, we're in the process of that. So it's been two good dialogues and we're scheduled to have another dialogue um, to hopefully finalize the best location for the witness stone. You mentioned they were concerned with the suggestion to place this near the veterans park. Why is that? Um, I think they feel that um, with this um, 
the Veterans Park being um, a sacralized place right now, if we <clears throat> allow um, a memorial like this that's not related to um, memorializing people of service and their sacrifice, that it's a slippery slope that another memorial might go in or some other type of thing. And um, and that's where, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's an important point to consider. Um, but the thing, it's interesting too, because, but this is, this is the part where this is hard history. And, um, you know, Susie's saying African-American history is American history. And um, so, you know, in some respects too, we're coming to these, um, to these groups and they haven't had some of our, you know, we, what uh, the Suffield Historical Society adult online class, we began with um, uh, the hard history podcast. And so that people could learn how to see history and answering other questions like, so how do you begin this history? You have to look at, well, who was involved in supplying all of the raw materials so that um, slave plantations in the Caribbean could, you know, exist and produce sugar. And it's really the mid-Atlantic states and the New England states did that. That's the triangle that was missing in our U.S. history books the last 20, 30 years. And that this is how you begin to do the detective work. Um, so it's sort of like the first 10 minutes of your hour-long detective series. And then you trace those um, economic factors, and then you find the enslavers that way. And um, so... <clears throat> all this information is complex and it's, it's coming at a big wave. And so every dialogue I've had with the board of selectmen meetings, I think have been fascinating because we're, we're learning um, where each of us stand with this um, position and we're learning from each other and continuing the dialogue. Mm. Dennis Culleton, I wanted you to respond because again, so much research and passion goes into uh, some of what these communities are doing. And when you get to the point where it comes time to now place the witness stone to acknowledge this person, this enslaved person that lived in one of our Connecticut towns, you know, it's not it's so simple as to find a place that everyone in the community can agree on. Uh, yes. And, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, uh, Bill is touching on is, you know, we don't want to do the Witness Stones project to somebody. We don't want to do it to a community. We want to do it with a community. And that's why it's so important that the community is involved. We heard, you know, uh, members of our of our class and and, you know, the local historians. And, and so it becomes a big part of it because we it is a process and we have to go through it. And not everybody is on the same place on the path. We in, in Guilford, we've installed so far seven Witness Stones memorials and we had one community member who, uh, you know, mostly we're putting them in public places, but we are also putting them in front of private homes. And we had a community member who said, I prefer not to have it in front of my home. And, and we respected that. And we're hoping, you know, down the line that they'll, they'll, they'll come around and say, well, we, you know, that would be great because it's a really good story to tell <laughs> at that place. But we, you know, we have to respect that not everybody's at the same place. And the worst thing we could do is force it on someone who isn't ready or a community that's not ready. So that's why, you know, somebody says, well, Dennis, how do you market the Witness Stones project? I, I said, I have to wait for people to ask, you know, people have to ask, uh, invite us into their community because if we if we put this on someone, then that's just going to cause resentment. And I think we'll all get there. I think everybody will get to the point of saying this is important work and we need to highlight it. 
Um, and, and sometimes it's about finding the right spot. In, in Guilford, the first stone we put in was in front of the town hall with the full blessing of the Board of Selectmen. And that's where Moses lived two buildings before. So we put the first stone in for Moses in front of the town hall in Guilford, and we were embraced by the community. The second stone we put it in was in front of the savings bank, and, and they embraced it. So, But that's not going to happen all the time. So we have to, you know, in, in some communities, we find the partner. In, in, um, in Norfolk, uh, the story we did, uh, the project we did with James Mars, James Mars was a deacon, and he was also enslaved by a member of the congregational church there. So the first stone was put in by the congregation on the grounds of the congregational church with their blessing support and everything else. So, you know, we, we, we work with communities. We're not here to tell people what to do. <laughs> We're just here to, you know, help tell these stories. It's also interesting to know, you know, like <clears throat> all good teachers, this is just good common practice. You meet your students where they are. Mm. And um, the board of selectmen are very positive to the idea of a witness stone installation and they're just trying to figure out uh, you know how the veterans feel what would be appropriate so it it that's why i bring up the word dialogue again we're, we're having this dialogue right now um and yeah so it is exciting that they all see how we're joining you know really this movement when you just even the statistics you just mentioned of the witness stone project mm -hmm. it's 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 quite exciting to be a part of it we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, you just heard Bill Sullivan, who's a trustee with the Suffield Historical Society, leading efforts in the town of Suffield to place a witness stone to memorialize Tamer, a, a woman who was enslaved in the late 1700s. Dennis Culleton is also here, co-founder and executive director of the Witness Stones Project. Dennis, can you talk about what it's like to install these stones and the ceremonies that you've been part of? Yes, it's it's amazing to me, and and you know I think sometimes you think that maybe we'll do this, and and we hope something happens. It's kind of like you know, <laughs> it's kind of like cooking. You have all the ingredients, the temperatures, are, but I'll say the second year we we had the witness stone ceremony here in Guilford, Connecticut. Uh, we invited uh, former state representative Pat Wilson Phineas to come down and, and be our keynote speaker. And she is the ninth generation descendant of Montrose and Phyllis who were purchased in Boston in 1727. And she spoke to the community about what this project meant to her. Very, very similar to what Susie was saying, how important it is to know your history and 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 how blessed she felt by knowing that and and the audience was in tears <laughs> and I just and it was it was just so amazing and then later on we had this photograph of, of of pat and one of our students putting the stone in the ground uh in, in front of the savings bank and uh for her uh sixth generation great uh grandfather montrose and i i don't think it could have been more powerful because it, it you know we had the story of Montrose, but then we had his sixth generation great granddaughter as as a personification of all the sacrifices he made. Uh, he was able to gain his freedom uh, and, and have property, and that property was an inheritance to his children and grandchildren. And 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 then we followed this family all the way to the present. I think there's some 13 year olds in Seattle, but it it is just an amazing story, and and there's so many of them. 
And that's the part. There's so many stories, and 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 I couldn't, you couldn't feel more moved than than what happened on that day. But then May first, we're in Norfolk, and and people walked away with the same feeling. I'm telling the story of of James Mars working with the students at Salisbury School, and, and this is happening across the state over the next few weeks, and. Um, it, it, it really feels, Bill said, you know, we call it a project, but it's beginning to feel like a movement, I guess. Well, it's been a really interesting hour to learn more about how this movement is spreading. Dennis Culleton, co-founder and executive director of the Witness Stones Project. Thank you, and thank you for your work uh, doing this around our state. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you for having me on board. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of good leads and and good questions from the community uh, because uh, your show is so popular and and the people, you know, who who listen to it are people who really oftentimes want to make a difference in their community. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much for contacting me and and, and getting me involved with the show. Thank you, Dennis. We love all our listeners, lifelong learners. And I also want to thank Bill Sullivan, a trustee at the Suffield Historical Society. Bill, I can't wait to hear uh, what's next for this potential stone for Tamer and all the work that you and community members have been doing. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Test Terrible produced today's show. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. And Hannes Brown composed our theme song. We hope you have a great weekend. 